Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit to help us in, in such a, a difficult a book that seems to swing between two extremes. Uh, God, we thank you for the teaching of Solomon uh, and ultimately the teaching through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, again, you know, the concept of Genesis being in front of Solomon as he was writing the book of Ecclesiastes, we see more themes that are going to be picked up starting today. Uh, There are seven different Carpe Diem, Seize the Day passages in Ecclesiastes. Um, and they share common terms with this section of Genesis 2 that we will uh, explore, that we'll read in a minute. I mean, the exact same terms are found. There's even there's synonyms here, um, and you can see the frequency at which they appear. And ultimately, the whole point to enjoy, that it's lawful to enjoy your spouse, to enjoy food and work and pleasure that the Lord brings us. And the reason why we want to look at Genesis is it's the story of creation, it's the story of the fall, and it helps us to understand why there's these kinks and gaps in creation now, as we handled previously in in, uh, Ecclesiastes 1.15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking, the gaps, cannot be numbered. Now, modern man would ask the question, how can God be good, as in Genesis, if there's evil and injustice, as we'll see today, in the world? So there must be no God. But there is a God, and we'll see today, from Ecclesiastes 3, that he is coming in judgment to set accounts straight and to fill those voids. Let's read Genesis 2, 15 to 25. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, and listen to these terms here, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, And every bird of the air and brought them to Adam, man, to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Uh, today's, uh, there's actually three Carpe Diem passages we should be able to get through today in chapter 2 and 3. It will not include the term woman. That's only seen once in Ecclesiastes in a later passage, to, to enjoy your wife is how it's worded. Um, now where we left off Solomon a week ago in Revelation 2, 20, Revelation, in Ecclesiastes 2, 22 to 23, 
It said, For what has man for all his labor, and for the striving of his heart which he's toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful, and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. So we left Solomon again asking the question of 1-3. What has man for all his labor under the sun? And in 1-8, you remember the poem, the chiastic pro- poem with the answer in 1-8. It was only weariness. And in 2.23, we now see that he's tossing and turning on his bed. He's in sorrow. It had left him in despair. Now, Ecclesiastes is difficult. But part of what Ecclesiastes does for the Christian is that while not validating sin, it recognizes the Christian does indeed carry about this body of sin. That is the reality to the glory of God. Consider Romans 7.19. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. And 23. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. In recognizing that our mortal bodies are subject to death and decaying since birth, we recognize that we, just as the non-Christian, live under the sun. Those kinks and gaps, they exist for all of us, all humanity, and there's enough to go around. Last week... I said commentator David Gibson said, The reality is is that if death doesn't inform the way we live, then death is something we are pretending doesn't exist. And death is important to be aware of, because after that is judgment. So now we start a new section, 224, all the way hopefully through 322 today, with an alternative outlook, that of faith. So let me ask you, What has been just about completely missing up to this point through two chapters? Okay. Faith in who? Uh, (laughs) Faith in myself. Yes, Solomon thought he had faith in himself, didn't he? Uh, God. There's only one mention in 113. And that's not as the answer to mankind's problem, but as its cause. This awful chore that God has given us here on earth. This burdensome task. But here in 2.24 and following, the other side is introduced. The other was all about under the sun, on earth, under heaven. Strictly the horizontal view. But now we see God and faith in Him vertically. And he's the source of wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And even, in 3.11, the creator of beauty. So let's read 2.24 to 26, the first Carpe Diem passage. I'm still in Genesis. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? 
For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting, that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. These carpe diem passages are juxtaposed with that word, habel, Hebrew for vanity. They are, are the alternative response. And we can see with mention of God, we're now moving in a different direction. Um, I'm really grateful for this book my father-in-law gave me, Ecclesiastes uh, by Russell Meek. Uh, also very skinny, so I appreciated that. Um, but he actually is, you know, in some of the more monumental ones, like the Bartholomew I, I showed you guys, uh, he, he definitely refers to Genesis and, and other commentators' takes on that. But I am grateful for Meek, who put them in these helpful tables like this uh, to compare to Genesis. Um, you know, these, these portions from God are a picture of our life that we would have had in the garden. They're a picture of eternal life as well, when God will be our true and only portion. And they show us that he is reverent, to be reverenced and obeyed. But understand that these gifts are also passing, right? Uh, they're temporary. And the other problem is, well, let me not call that first one a problem. In God's, in God's timing and in God's time, they are good. But the problem is, aren't they easily exploited by our sinful nature? Uh, to abuse alcohol is, is an easy example. To come to worship the creature rather than the creator. To make an idol of the, the very blessings he gives us. One of the things I'm most grateful for in the study in Ecclesiastes has been uh, a, a, a realization that I need to be more thankful for these portions that God gives us here. You know, be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication. I always forget that part. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So the fear of God should tell us how to receive these gifts and how to enjoy them. And that we should enjoy them. We know that God entered creation, fallen creation, and became a man. And just as Abel's blood, remember, Abel, Havel, a shortened, a shortened life made brief by murder, the righteous killed because of sin. Well, just as his blood cried out for justice to God from the ground, Jesus' blood cries out as blood that reconciles and adopts. So, remember last week, Solomon with his royal experiment, taking all the good blessings, that's what I'm talking about, he's taking all the, the blessings from God. Remember, yes, I'll give you wisdom because you asked for that, and because you asked for that, I'm going to bless you in all these other ways. And he took these things and made idols out of them, trying to re recreate his own Garden of Eden to play God, getting for himself all the pleasures he could stand. But now we come to see that eating, drinking, and finding enjoyment are God's gifts. 
They're given in his good time. Now, my past readings of the Carpe Diem verses like this throughout always left me confused. I'm like, is this, what is, what is he doing? What, what does he mean, enjoying stuff here? Uh, there's nothing better than. Well, he means, of course, there's nothing better than now for us than to enjoy these things. That's what they've been given to do. And as long as we don't idolize them, they are good and right. But I always wondered, is this just Solomon being, you know, nihilistic, uh, no values, just, just being uh, unchristlike? You know, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die is, is another thing that confused me. It sounded a lot like that. In Isaiah twenty-two, twelve through 13. And in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth. But instead, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, is what they said. So, yeah, I would... I, was, was I reading that kind of, of statement here or, and throughout Ecclesiastes? Or now I understand uh, through this study that uh, it's a blessing from God. And it's not just a blessing. It's a commandment. Have joy. Charles Bridges put it another way. He's not speaking of the supreme good, God, but of the greatest good that can be had now here under the sun. And this is the biblical doctrine of creation, isn't it? I appreciate who pointed this out to me last week. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And Gibson looks at it like this. The nihilist, if I'm saying that right, nihilist, would say, eat, drink, and be merry, because that's all there is, right? The supreme good. But Kohelet, the preacher, Solomon says, eat, drink, and be merry, because that's what there is now. God has given us these good things, and they are their own reward. But Ecclesiastes makes it clear that joy and thankfulness are also our obligation. We should pursue them in, in themselves, and not as how these good gifts could make us happy and fulfilled. This quote uh, struck me this week hard from David Gibson. We tend to use the world, work, possessions, and people I will. We tend to use the world, work, possessions, and people as leverage for our own purposes and to achieve our own goals as tools to master life for our, for our own ends. But David Gibson says, Solomon says life is meant to be enjoyed. Not mastered. All right, let's look at the individual verses. 24. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink. 
and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. Nothing better than. These better than quotes appear four times in uh, Ecclesiastes. Three of them we should see today, if I can pull myself together. And they mean there's no greater good in this world than to synchronize with God's good purposes for man. To eat and drink in the Bible signifies contentment. As man was content in the Garden of Eden, Psalm 104, 13 to 15, he waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. We need to reclaim the theology of food. Food is not fuel. Fuel so I can go to work, so I can work to buy more food to fuel me the next week. Two twenty-five. Such a life is the gift of God. So, a um, couple of the ones I really am leaning to: Michael Eaton and Craig Bartholomew. And you'll see it in your ESV and your NASB. For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who's good in his sight. Where am I? I'm sorry. Let's see. Twenty-five. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? Uh, your Bibles are going to say more like, for who can eat or have enjoyment uh, apart from him, apart from God? And these commentators make a good case that that's a better, uh, a better thing. It seems to be saying, like, otherwise Solomon, uh, Solomon already just learned it didn't work out too well for him trying to have enjoyment. Um, so it's clearly a reference to God, that apart from him, we cannot have enjoyment. Mm, okay. So uh, Bartholomew points out in, in 2.26 where the uh, follower of God uh, gathers, or excuse me, the father of God um, has what is good in, in the Lord's sight, um, but those who do not follow him uh, do the work for um, the believer, uh, which, which is kind of a restoration of that character, consequent structure. The good will be blessed. Uh, the evil will be cursed. That was overturned, right? With Abel, with his murder. Well, at the garden, at the, uh, at the fall. But... Um, Uh, Solomon here is recognizing that uh, Solomon is recognizing that there is going to still be a character and consequent structure at the end of time in judgment. So, I don't know about you, but when you get to these three verses, it's like uh, taking a, a shower and you know, after you've mowed the lawn or something and uh, getting all that hedonism and despair of the first two chapters out. 
Ecclesiastes is about resolving the tension between what Solomon knows as a believer and what he observes in his scientific experiments. Yes? Yeah, Matt, just an observation. I think that language about the sinner being given by God the work of gathering the blessing that he may give to him who is good before God, that reminds me of of something that I think would have resonated a lot with Israel as a big part of their history. They spent 400 years in slavery, left with all the possessions and wealth of, of Egypt, and then after 40 years of wandering, entered in and were given fields they did not plant, vineyards they didn't cultivate. Mm. This is a huge theme of God telling expressing to their people um, the blessings they would get. That's a, a wonderful... Somewhere else. Right, that's a wonderful picture, the, the idea that while they were in slavery in Egypt for 400 or more years, um, the, the heathen, uh, the pagans in, in their promised land uh, were busy getting the land ready for them. I just want to move along. I do have a question here. How would you describe true, true joy to a friend who knows nothing of true joy? Uh, so forget that I just said I want to move along. Let's do that. Um, I can always shave off the last few verses at the end of the day here. So how would you describe tr- true joy to a friend who knows nothing of true joy? Is his friend a believer? Okay. Does it matter? Yeah. Okay. How, how would you address the unbeliever? Okay, so say you're talking to me six months ago before I started preparing uh, and had my eyes open to this carpe diem idea. What would you tell me? about a gift, right? Yes. Yes. It's more of a quiet, you know, dancing on the table kind of joy. Right. (laughs) Yes. I couldn't hear what, I couldn't hear what he was saying, but to me, someone said that. (laughs) (laughs) I would just say, it takes an act of God through Jesus Christ to give you pure joy in your heart. Mm. Thank you. Yes. So, uh, 3, 1 through 8. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, 
a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, and a time of war and a time of peace. Gibson points out that as with this poem, the world has a rhythmic pattern in time, and as our lives experience their own regularities and cadences, that ebb and flow is seen even with us. I read a wonderful book. As soon as I read that, that one later in, uh, in Ecclesiastes about time and chance, I finally used it as my excuse to buy this book by Vern, Vern Poitras, Chance and the Sovereignty of God. I, I only read it through once. I haven't been able to really incorporate it yet, but maybe you know I'll be able to do something on that a little bit later so we can really understand how um, this chance idea is, is still ordained by God. Uh, and there's no surprise to him. What this poem shows us is creation is ordered by God on his schedule. These are God's times and not ours. This is not a lament. Because I really, reading it in the past, was well, that good or bad? It's not a lament of the ceaseless round of life like we saw in chapter 1 in that poem. Remember, um, all the rivers flow into the sea and the sea is not full, yet the rivers keep on flowing. It just seems to go round and round. It's not like that kind of despair. And it's the worldview that we just saw with enjoyment at the end of chapter 2. Now, now the world loves to read this thing at funerals, apparently. The other thing, Matt, is you'll hear that on the radio every so often. Yes, yes. So to everything, there is a season and a fixed time, a predetermined purpose. Acts fifteen eighteen says, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. I really want to do this. I'll do a couple. All right, so Exodus twelve forty one. Trust me, uh, at that time, when the time came, they left Egypt. They marched out of Egypt. I'll skip that one. I'll do Ezra. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing saying, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Seventy years, wasn't it? Was that the appointed time? Don't make me do Esther. All right. Um, And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you'll escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Galatians 4.4 most importantly, but when the fullness of the time had come. Thank God. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. My wife gave me this pocket watch when I graduated law school. Ecclesiastes 8.5, the wise heart will know 
the proper time and procedure. If we're going to think clearly about time, Gibson said, part of living well is to accept two things. First, we are enclosed within time's bounds, and God is not. A time to be born and a time to die. Tell me, what is the significance of starting with birth and death in this poem? encapsulates the entirety of your existence everything else included between birth and death our existence in time under the sun the Christian must say that change is good aren't we glad that it's not always August in Florida always raining think of the, the moon and the tides Appalachie Bay would be a complete cesspool if the tides didn't run. We must learn we have no control over these things, at least not over the proper time and procedure. I mean, we could kill, right? But is it right? Is this the time? We could speak. I need to work on this one. Is it time? Keep silent, but is it time? I'm not going to plow through every single verse. If you have specific questions um, about, I mean, the interesting thing about casting away and gathering stones, I, I always assume that was for stoning someone. Sometimes you fulfill God's law, and other times, like with Christ, uh, let he is without uh, sin the first stone. However, none of the commentators mention that one, so um, maybe it's to ruin a field in the time of war to, to throw stones all over it. Maybe it's to clear a field, um, cast them away. Anyway, enough of that. Um, just one comment from Bridges about possessions in 3.6. When the appointed time comes for it to rust or be lost, are we content in that providence? All right, 9 through 15. All right. Now, I would just say that, I, I mean, I just, you might be getting there, but um, the question, of course, that you asked about how do you describe joy, that quote that you just said brings to mind, I mean, that would have been my answer, is that it has a kind of a um, more deep contentment with all of these circumstances right. that are happening. You know, and that's how it, I, I feel like it kind of ties together. Recognizing that there is this time here, and there will be a time here. We might not be there yet, but that's how God has ordered our lives. And so then to find that joy I, in those circumstances, it's helpful to see and recognize that it's coming around. Right. Thank you. 9 through 15, what profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. 
and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which has already been is that is what is to be. That which, that which is has already been and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account. There's the first mention of justice, of what is past. <clears throat> so how we handle all those things in that poem, from laughing to weeping and working with stones and keeping silent and loving and hating, those actions and how we handle them, rightly or wrongly, have meaning and weight behind them in light of the coming judgment of our Messiah. And just as the blood of Abel and Jesus cries out from the ground, it gives our losses and injustices in this momentary world a voice in his presence. Now, David Gibson says this brings forth both comfort and challenge. The email I sent, uh, the question, what is Gibson thinking? How do the poem's rhythmical patterns in our lives as God's gift within time give us comfort, especially in light of Ecclesiastes 3.11? He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. How do these patterns actually lend comfort to us? He's a loving, having father, right? So we're prepared to take the the chastening, right. even. Okay. Yes, John. When, when we observe, along with Solomon, our inability to control or even to profit in our in ourselves, and we see the futility of vanity around, recognizing that there is a providence, there is a God who orders all things, who is behind and above mm. and outside all. Right. And that he never changes. He never changes. Seasons change, but God never changes. Mm, wonderful. Talked before about how we often want to access the big picture. Uh, you know, it says right there, he's put eternity into man's heart. But we cannot find it out. God's plan from beginning to end. Well, we are creatures. We are not God. Solomon was not God. Uh, just for later, I'm not going to do uh, confessions today. Consider what it might look like in your life to grow small, to let God be God. Well, a comfort and a challenge, Gibson says, knowing God is outside time and sees it all and will bring it to judgment stops us from needing to control everything that happens to us. Again, if you want to write it down to consider privately, what things do you seek to control? And what might it look for us to surrender control? How can embracing the fact of change, it's coming, maybe in the next minute, in advance help us in living a godly life? 
how as we've somewhat hit on it, but how can embracing the fact of change in this world, if we know that in advance, how can it help us in dealing with that change in life? In the moment you're in, now you can enter into the joy of the world. That would be my Lord. desire to practice that. I'm not saying I'm always doing it. Yes. But it would be a, a goal. Right. <clears throat> Go ahead, Matt. Not being surprised by it, or being less surprised by it, and when people get surprised by change, and even in the church, shortly, being offended by it, and upset, and discontent, in an ungodly way, and so... Okay. Matt's pointing out that, that we know that, that change is coming. Uh, the same person that made the last state we were in, perhaps a time of mourning, uh, God, uh, the creator, uh, the, the one who governs this world, he made that, and now he makes this time of laughter as well. And we're pretty sure there's going to be more mourning after that. Yes. Jesus Christ is uh, talking about the difference between the Old and the New Testament. Um, uh, God wasn't different in the two. Now, it was certainly fleshed out better, and we have a better understanding and vision. Uh, but just as Solomon waited on those promises, so, so we see it uh, bearing fruit already in, in the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. I'm glad you went there uh, in hope, sanctification, I mean, ultimate salvation, uh, which we already partake of in now. Um, yeah, are we willing to say, God, I told you I don't like change, especially to the bad things. 
uh, are we really willing to say, Holy Spirit, I don't like change. You know, I, I'm perfectly fine right here. Of course we wouldn't say that. All right, let me figure out how to bring this into port here. So in uh, 3.9, he, he again asks, what profit is our labor? We saw that in, in 1.3. Well, there's no profit. It's wearisome. It's burdensome. Um, I saw that again in 2.22 to 23 as we started the day here. You know, Charles Bridges, he wrote a comment in the mid a commentary in the mid-1800s. He says, we want to explore God's work, but our life is so short and our knowledge is so imperfect that we cannot find out the full work of God. Only he sees from beginning to end. Got to remember that every faculty of man is made perverse in the fall. And we are, we are in the process of being recovered. Uh, not judicially, we are justified, but that sanctification, a full recovering of the Garden of Eden. So look at our temporal mercies, bring them to mind and thankfulness. So there's two I know statements between 12 and 15. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. 14. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. The first holds out hope of an enjoyable life from the hand of God. Eaton says that's man's privilege. But the second shows the security of such a life is its divine guarantor, God. So the first is man's privilege, but the second is God's purpose. The difference between the two, or let me put that a different way, the thing that both of those I know statements confess, basically, is the sovereignty of God. And that's the difference. We weren't hearing anything about that until the very end of chapter 2. In 14 to 15... I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is has already been, and, that's, and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. There are three aspects of God's actions that are highlighted. That what he does is permanent, with no possibility of failure. It is effective and complete so that none of his works has to be abandoned and it is totally secure. In other words, he is responsible for the kinks and the gaps in life from Ecclesiastes 1.15. But he is the Lord and governor of this world. 
these I know these I know responses to that question. Bartholomew says it interprets repetition. Take go back to the poem in chapter one at the beginning, all the rivers being filled or, or trying to fill the ocean, never accomplishing it. Our hearing never being filled, our sight never being filled, never completed. He takes up that repetition here and interprets it theologically. Consider Genesis 8.22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. This is God's promise to sustain creation. And in this promise, we know that there's always a fitting time and a fitting place for our times and activities. It's a little, that statement leaves, leaves Solomon, I think, a little unfulfilled in verse 11. Except no one can find out the work that God has done from beginning to end. Almost despairing of being able to discern the time and the place. But the other, the I know statements following, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever, celebrates time as the context in which to rejoice, to do good, to eat and drink, and enjoy one's labor. All right, well, we'll pick up with 316 next week and probably... Get all the way through chapter 4. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your mercy to us through your Son. That is really the ultimate thing that you have done uh, in your creation. First creating it, but then creating it anew through the sacrifice of your Son for us. Lord, we haven't handled all the gifts you give us rightly. We've often abused them. And we sure haven't done all those other things in the, in the poem. A, a time and a season, Lord. We haven't done them all aright. So we ask forgiveness for those things. You, even perhaps that we didn't do so well this morning, Lord. God, bring us now into worship of people who have got no problem with confessing our sin to you. Because we run to the cross and we thank you for it. We thank you for restoring creation and the promise of that. We thank you for even now having actually restored it in our hearts. But we're, we still carry this body of flesh, Lord. And we ask that that, uh, that flesh would be subdued as we come spiritually before you in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.